I came into the worship service today <clears throat> uh, knowing that I was preaching, which is good to know the day when you're getting ready to do it. It's good to know you're doing it. And I, I came in today knowing I was preaching, but also having that operations guy mind and all the little things going on. So I was distracted, right? I was trying to focus and, and uh, sit down and kind of get my mind right. And then Ryan started into it and he started saying this thing about whoa, 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 and these, these you know, strange things that we sing in worship and that frustrates some people. What are we, a bunch of rock singers, you know, or whatever. And, uh, and I'm sitting there thinking, I'm, and so the first woes came along and I was like, whoa, that's how the song goes. And, and I started thinking about yesterday, which was football Saturday, right? College yesterday, yeah. And what does that sound like? Come on, people. Da, 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 da. You know it's true. And 80,000 people did that this Friday. And listen to you, you're clapping for it, yeah. And you all have your own thing, your own college. Mine was terrible. I went to Southern Methodist University. It was our, our mascot was a Mustang, a pony. And our thing was this for pony years. And the theme, this is real, is basically she'll be coming around the mountain. <laughs> Try to stand across from Texas A&M University when they're playing the fight song from Patton. And you're going... No bueno. No bueno. But, but if you're in the top five in the BCS, it's Okay. Everybody loves it. It's the coolest thing in the world. And they sell the t-shirts and everything else. And there's all this energy and this fire that goes with this sporting event, this, this thing that is called football. And I, I love football. I love it. I love sport because there's this competition. There's this aspiration to be the greatest you are, to work together as a team, all these wonderful things, and, and, and to make it, to arrive. And there's always in every sport a definition of what it means to arrive, whether it's you know, to get the, the gold medal in the Olympics or the Ironman tattoo on your leg or the, or, the, or the BCS championship. So let me tell you a conversation that did not happen in any locker room before any game over the weekend. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it for you, all right? I've been in a lot of pep talk speeches. I've given pep talk speeches in the locker room. And usually they're about killing people. They're about how horrible the opponent is and you just demonize them and you find anything that any of them ever said and you hold it against them. And you talk about how you're going to go in there and you're going to drive into the dirt and then you go out and you get them, you get them. And you get all whipped into a frenzy. Let me tell you, here's a conversation I never had. It's a pep talk I never heard. All right, fellas, got a big game tonight. We're number one, they're number two. We've got a lot at stake here. We've got to win this thing. So what I want you to do right now is I want you to pray for your opponent. I want you to think about your counterpart on the other side of the field. If you're a defensive back, I want you to think about their defensive back. And I want you to picture him because he's more than just an object. He's a person. And I want you to pray for that guy right now. And I want to tell you, when we go out there, I want you all to run across the field. And I want you to find that guy and I want you to hug him. And I want you to tell him that you just prayed for him and his family, that you hope he has a great game, that you hope he, he, he he's doesn't get injured, that you hope you don't do anything in the heat of the moment to embarrass yourself or your God. And then I want you to come over here and I want you to give it your all. At the end of that game, we're gonna get down on one knee again and we're gonna hold hands with that other team no matter what happens. And we're gonna pray together. You have never heard that kind of pep talk ever, and you never will. You know why? Because it, it's totally counterintuitive to the whole idea of the game. It's totally counterintuitive. It's a different world. It's a different way of thinking. And the only thing that would change it would be some kind of miraculous intervention. It'd probably be like this. If you're number one in the country, you get to do whatever you want. So you can be a coach and be crazy, and they'd let you get away with it as long as you're number one. But that's the world. That's the way the world works. 
That's the way the world works. I read a Time Magazine article this week. Maybe you've seen it on the cover of Time Magazine. It says 21 questions about the way we live. And one of the questions is, how do you know when you've made it? How do you know when you've made it? And so somebody, uh, and they had a little video attached to it online. And so somebody said, this girl, she was great. She goes, she goes when you're like sitting somewhere, not having to worry about anything, and your assistant is just standing by, handling everything, and you're just like eating lobster, then you know you've made it. Another one says, uh, when you can relax whenever you want with your beautiful wife and your beautiful kids. When you're feeling a little bit satisfied with life, with a little more in the bank than you have right now. And this last guy, he says, you have to be content with yourself. That's what it's all about. Let me tell you what nobody said. Nobody said, I'll know I've arrived, I'll know I've made it when I don't need stuff or status or power anymore. Nobody said, when I've emptied myself and become a servant, I will then know that I've arrived. Nobody said, when I've given everything I have to God for his purposes, then I'll know that I've made it. Let me tell you why they didn't say that. Because it's counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense in the world that we live. And it didn't make sense to the disciples either, the men that we're going to study today as we continue in that study of the look. No matter how many times, and think about this, these men spent three years in intense training and life with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, decisively revealed they were his crew. They were his guys that he invested in with his, his, his time, his talent, his treasure, everything he had for three years, and they still didn't get it. They were still uh, held on to their longings for the assistance and the lobster and the beautiful wives and a little more money in the bank, in the bank account and an, uh, an intellectual enlightenment that would make them happy. So in other words, they were just like you and me. They needed some kind of miraculous intervention to get them to stop thinking this kingdom and start thinking God's kingdom. That's what he was all about, right? The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. That's what he did for all this time. We've been studying Luke. He's been showing them the kingdom of heaven. What's it like in my kingdom? What will the rules be in my kingdom? And they just weren't going to get it. And Jesus knew they weren't going to get it. And we're going to see that in the passage today. It didn't come naturally to them to desire God's kingdom and know how to live in it. It was not natural to them. And it's not natural to us. Unless something happens. So we're going to go into our story today in Luke chapter 22. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to it. If you don't, there's a, a, the text is up on the screen, and if you are, are new to the church, if you ever want to have a Bible in your hand, uh, we have them back in the parlor back there. You're welcome to grab one, uh, take it home with you. We also have study Bibles that we use called the Reformation Study Bible. We really like that. We don't get any kind of commission if you take one. Um, but uh, we'd love for you to be in the Word with, with us here, to really know the Word and to live it and to understand it. So uh, we enter into this story, and it's actually really dramatic. I was talking to my girls about this weekend. I was going, wow, you know, this is a really dramatic time. In Jesus' life, it's, I mean, this would be a great movie. 
Here we are, we're at the end of his earthly ministry, right? So he's been going around for three years and he's had this growing tidal wave of support. And yeah, the religious leaders have been ticked off at him and they've been bugging him but, uh, and giving him a, you know, they've been a nuisance, but they haven't really gotten to him yet. And what's been happening is all the masses have been building and building and building like a tidal wave of support. And they've gone into this upper room to have the Passover supper together and the disciples are all puffed up because they are associated with the king. And as much as he's tried to explain to them what's about to come, keep in mind what he just did at dinner, okay? At this dinner that they're still at. He had just washed their feet. He just washed their feet. He had just taken the Passover supper and changed the rules. And he'd, he didn't serve the lamb in the supper. He, he had the bread and the wine. And he basically said, I'm the lamb, right? He had the bread. He said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. It will proclaim my death until I come. And he's telling them, look what's coming. And they're still just not getting it. They're just all sitting there puffed up and they're talking about who's going to be the CEO? Who's going to be the COO? I want to be this. Who's going to be that? They're all aligning themselves for this earthly kingdom that they think is coming. And that's where we begin our story today. So in verse 24, it begins this way. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Now, a benefactor, you need to know, there was a a very important word, because it was like this. All the rich, powerful, wealthy people would assign this title to each other. It was a title that you wore on your mantle, on on your, on your your tunic, and you had on your mantle, and it said, I don't know if you put it on your tunic, but they had tunics. You could see it. Everybody knew you had it. And the title was benefactor. And what that meant was you were a helper of the people. But of course, what benefactor meant in that day in Rome, and often still means today, is that they would help you. In reality, the rich and powerful would only help you. They would only help the poor and the weak or anyone if they could expect some kind of payout in return. That was the kind of world that they lived in. That was the kingdom of this world, something in return. So Jesus makes a contrast and he says this, but not so with you, here it comes. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. For who is greater than the one who reclines at the table? Who's greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I, he says, implied, your teacher, your Messiah, your king, the one who just washed your feet, am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel, he says. But he says this, I just showed you again what life is like in my kingdom. So, you're, yeah, yeah, you're, you're going to have seats at the table. You're going to be judges over Israel. You're going you're to have all that. It's true that you'll each have a seat at my table, but in my kingdom, leaders serve. In my kingdom, leaders only put one thing on their mantle, and it's a cross. There's only one person on a leader's throne, and it's not the leader, it's God. 
So then, as he's preparing his disciples for this, and they're still trying to get their minds around it, and I think maybe they're still going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus turns to the most bold disciple in the room. He turns to Peter. And he looks him in the eye. And I want you to hear in this the tenderness and the sorrow with which Jesus speaks these words which are prophetic. Simon, Simon, that was his name before Jesus changed it to Peter. Remember he said, you are Simon and I call you Peter, which means rock. And on this rock I will build my church. He's speaking not to the rock who would build his church. He's speaking to the broken, sinful, overconfident man who is still all those things because he has not had that miracle yet. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. That he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, I prayed for you that your faith might not fail. And when it does, it won't fail completely. And when you turn again to me, do what? Strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death because I'm obviously the CEO. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny, until you deny three times that you even know me. How could that be? Peter had the most guts of any of these guys. Peter was the guy who in just a little bit would take out a sword and cut the ear of a Roman soldier off or servant off with all these Roman soldiers around that could kill him like that. Peter was a bold guy. How could it be, and Peter's wondering the same thing, that he would ever consider denying Jesus? Not once, Maybe you could explain that, a moment of weakness. Not twice, three times. Even before the next morning, Jesus says, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times, Peter, because I know your character. I know who you are. You are an overconfident, arrogant, cocky, sinful man. And that's why, Peter, I just called you Simon instead of Peter, to remind you who you are. And by the way, there's an interesting little thing going on here in this passage. I actually read it wrong when I said, Simon, Simon, behold, uh, Satan is sifting you, to have, uh, is demanding to have you. Actually, there's something interesting going on. What he says is, Simon, Simon, and then he stops. And he says, then he looks at all of his disciples and he says, Satan demanded to have you. That you is plural. He says, Simon, Simon. And then he looks at all of them and he says, Behold, Satan demanded to have you, plural, that he might sift you, plural, like wheat. In other words, Satan wants your necks. But I have prayed for you, back to Peter. Singular. The rock upon which I would build my church. And when you, Peter, singular, have turned again, strengthen these guys. Because you, the biggest coward, are going to be the rock on which I will build my church because something is about to happen to you, Peter. Because I'm going to take your fleeing, your running from the cross, and I'm going to use it to drive you back to the cross 
like no one this world has ever seen. You're the biggest and boldest in a lot of things, but the thing you're biggest and boldest in, he tells Peter, is your sin. And therefore, my big, bold, infinite grace will have its greatest work in you. Jesus redeems people. He redeems things. I was talking to somebody in Starting Point. They said this beautiful thing as we were in our little small groups. And they were talking about sin. They were, they were being honest with themselves about God. Or they were being honest with God about themselves. And she said something beautiful. She said, I realized that God's grace chased me everywhere my sin went. And that's what he does. Do you see the love Jesus had for Peter? Do you see how his sorrow at the, do you see his sorrow at the cowardice and overconfidence he knows Peter hasn't dealt with yet? Well, remember what Peter would then go and do. And I say this, if you're sitting there wallowing in your shame right now, or sitting there in your overconfidence and your boldness and your pride, if that's your thing, if that's your hang-up, you will be broken. But if you let Jesus do the breaking and if you let Jesus do the miracle, you're the ones who become the most powerful testimony to his healing power. Same with those of you who don't sit here as prideful, arrogant people, but as broken people who have been sinned against. Who, have, who can't understand why this world would deal with what it's dealt you who can't understand why God would let something happen to you, who can't get over your anger and bitterness toward another person or another wrong or something that's got you down. Jesus says the same thing to you. Don't you understand that this road I walk is not only for the sins in you, it's for the sins against you. It's not only for the redemption of you, it's not only the forgiveness of your sins, it's for the redemption of all of my creation and all of this stuff, even the garbage, is working together toward that end, Jesus says. So then he turns to all the disciples and he says to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Now, by the way, what kind of sword is he talking about there? Jesus is the guy, this is the guy that says turn the other cheek. This is the guy who puts the ear back on the servant that Peter cuts the ear off with the sword, takes the sword out, cuts the ear off. Jesus puts it back on and says, Peter, put that thing away. That's not the sword Jesus is talking about here, but they don't get that either. So he says, and let, no one, and, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you, the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. That's a prophecy from Isaiah. In other words, he says, brothers, there's going to be a fight. You have been riding the tidal wave of my popularity among the masses, among the common people right now. But there is a storm brewing and it's a storm that had to come. And you're getting ready to become the CEOs and the COOs and all of these things in my kingdom. You're getting ready to become the kings. And it's not going to be what you think. but it is going to be what it needs to be. And it's going to be beautiful. 
And finally he says, uh, and, and then it, it says this, I love this. And they said, uh, he says, for I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, the transgressors for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, we have two swords already. <laughs> and he just says, enough. You read that and, and first thought you think he meant, oh, okay, good. You got swords. Two swords is good for the 12 of you. Perfect. We only need 11 because one of you is going to, one of you is going to betray me. So we only, two will do it. You can spread them out. I don't trust you with a sword anyway. No, that's not what he's saying. What's happening here is he's going, he's, he's using an analogy of war and he's saying, get, get ready for the fight, man. And you remember how you used to go around and people would just lavish you with gifts because you were on the number one BCS title team and you got invited to the, to the White House and everybody wanted to have you around because you were associated with a winner and, and you were getting the, the, everywhere you went, more food than you could eat. Clothes, you don't have any clothes, they get clothes. Anything you need, you got it, right? Well, guess what? That's getting ready to come to an end and you're getting ready to go into a war. And they went, ha, war, swords, we got them. And he just went, enough. Because he knew they weren't going to get it until the next day. He knew they weren't going to get it until a few days later when something miraculous happened. And that, and that is this. The immeasurable mercy and grace of God that he had been working toward this cataclysmic moment, toward this catalytic time in history. He'd been drawing it all together so that it could explode into the world. It was about to happen. And the work of Jesus on the cross, which was not just physical, it was spiritual primarily, was about to happen. And his grace and his atonement for the sins of these men, for Peter's arrogance and pride was about to be applied. The miracle was about to happen. So he said, enough. You'll see. So here's the deal. Here's what's different about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth. There's only one thing you need to know to know that you have made it. How do you know when you've made it? When you yourself rest completely in the grace of God, through the work of Jesus, then you've made it. Then, once Jesus has done his work in you, and it comes first, not last, it's not the punchline, it's the fruit. When you've asked Jesus to come into your life and to change your heart, then guess what happens to that heart? Now, you don't need stuff or status or power anymore. Now, you'll empty yourself and become a servant. Now, you'll give everything you have to the Lord for His purposes. With pleasure. So here's the best part. What are His purposes? What, what's he up to here? What's this all about? What was he doing? I told you that everything came together in this catalytic moment and then this explosion happened where Jesus the Redeemer sends out his redeemers and people come to Christ and they cluster together into churches. And then those churches go out into the world and they explode and they change the world through this miracle that was the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross. Well, what's God up to? 
Well, let me tell you what he's up to. He's not just forgiving your sin. He's not just buying you a ticket to heaven. He's not just plucking you out of this dirty world to give you eternity on a cloud with a harp. That's not what the God who creates physical, tangible things and people does. Let me tell you what he's doing. It's described in Revelation 21. I'd encourage you to write this down. Revelation 21, 1 through 7. I'd write it down and I'd read it all the time. Anytime you don't know what the heck you're living for, anytime you're overwhelmed in your life, anytime you're wondering what things are all about or you're trying to make a decision about what to do with a career or, or to how to parent a child or whatever, I'd encourage you to go back and read this very passage because it is the picture of what God is up to and what he says with certainty that he will fulfill. So the Apostle John has a dream And he imagines this in the end of days, in the end of the days of this world. And in that dream, let me tell you what he sees. He sees a a magnificent city, a city of heaven, a new Jerusalem, he calls it. And he sees that city not up there. He doesn't see us being rocket shipped up to the city. He sees that city descend on earth. In other words, he sees that city changing the reality of this world. And that city comes down and it rests on this earth. And in that city, there are no more tears. He says that. He uses that word. He's quoting the Lord He says this, I want you to just close your eyes if you have to and imagine this. He says, that city will be so magnificent and glorious and beautiful that it will descend like a bride walking down the aisle to her groom. What a spectacular picture. And what will that city be like? No more tears, no more death, no more mourning, crying or pain. All things made new. And the one on the throne says this, To the thirsty he will give from the spring of water of life without payment. And then he says this, Those who conquer will have this heritage. They will be my children. That's where this world is headed. You place your trust in Christ and the miracle of his saving work. You you remember who God is and you put him in his proper place. And then you remember who you are and you put you in your proper place, not in a place of arrogance like Peter. And then Jesus does his miraculous work of grace and he changes your heart and he assures once and for all that you will be a citizen in this city and more than a citizen, you will be a child of the king. Then, with that humble and open heart, you have the ability to receive the wisdom of God, to receive his word and then to change and to act on that word in the world. And guess what you're doing? You're becoming a part of his redemptive work. You are the means by which God is bringing about the new city. God's grace is more than just the forgiveness of sins. It is the working out of his plan of redemption and his creation. His grace doesn't just apply to you and the bad things you do. 
His grace is not just gracious, it's graceful. It's elegant. It's beautiful. It's the way things ought to be, the fullest manifestation of God's love. It is His unrestrained favor and goodwill. And it will be the oxygen and the sunlight of the new city that He is preparing for you and with you. And you, when you get there, will bask in the warmth of His glory. So whenever you're down, whenever you have failed, whenever you have fallen, whenever you have been wounded, whenever you're confused about what to do, about what this kingdom says versus God's kingdom, go and read that dream of the new city. Because there you will rest once and for all in God's grace. Then you will have arrived. Let's pray. Lord God, you are a beautiful God. Your grace is amazing. Our chains are gone. We've been set free. You've ransomed us. We rest in your grace. And from that place, we call you to send us out as redeemers in this world. To make all things new the way they ought to be. To make sense of the complications and confusions and corruptions of this world. Do that through our healing, Father. Use our fleeing from the cross to drive us back to the cross. Boldly, as redeemers. In Jesus' name, amen.